Good morning. Such a pleasure to once again be before you here, and I invite you to and turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel 16. Summer is uh, officially over in my family, and I'm pretty sure I'm more upset about it than my kids are, uh, but I definitely know no one's happier than my wife. Uh, our boys return to school tomorrow, so... Uh, and then in two, just two very short weeks, it just seems like it's been a short summer, but in two very short weeks, uh, Mercer students will be moving back in all over campus. They'll actually be trickling in over the next two weeks as so many of them are so involved with everything that uh, gets the campus going again fall. Just such an exciting time, and, and I pray the same for you as well. Before we read here in 1 Samuel 16, uh, maybe a familiar story passage to you of David's anointing, David's entrance onto the scene of the story of Scripture. I just want to ask the question, why David? Why is a guy that lived over 3,000 years ago still important for us today? Why was he such an important figure for the people of God um, from, from the time that he came on the scene and, and on into history and throughout the rest uh, of the story of Scripture? And I've mentioned this before as we looked at David um, uh, the last time I was before you, actually, that he is second only to Jesus in the Bible in terms of how many times his name is mentioned. His story, the story of uh, how he comes onto the scene and his story of his kingdom and his reign is the most extensively narrated single story of any one character in all of Scripture. He's, and we know more about him than any other character. For the New Testament writers, for the apostles especially, he is seen as this towering figure in redemptive history. He's a source of authority. He's the source of the royal line, and he's the source of messianic hope, which leads us to Jesus. So other than Jesus in the story of Scripture, no one comes close to the magnitude of David. He's a towering figure. If we want to take Christianity, if you want to take Christianity seriously, if you know someone that wants to take Christianity seriously or begin investigating it, at some point, you must deal with David. He's that important. He's that integral to our understanding of the story of Scripture. So I'm going to be with you this morning, and I'm going to be with you, Lord willing, next week as well. And I want to look at this opening chapter of the David story, and next week we'll look at the next chapter, another familiar story as well. But this morning, let us read here the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither uh, has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has chosen none of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word for us this morning. May he add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of it. I love this opening chapter. I love the David story. I love this opening chapter in the David story as it comes to us from the author of First and Second Samuel. Because I think as you look at this story, as you look at this chapter and then think about and look into the rest of David's story, you see that this really frames the whole thing. Uh, it really frames our whole understanding of David the man, of David the king, uh, of David as this, this towering redemptive historical figure uh, that leads us and points us to Jesus. And so I want to look at this in three ways. And the first way I want to look at this this morning is David the man. Now that sounds, that maybe seems obvious, but I, I really want to think about this. David the man. He was a man. Here he's a boy. He's a young boy. He's 12, maybe 13. He's insignificant. His father doesn't even think to bring him to the feast when Samuel says, let me see your sons. Surely not David. He was a man. He was a real man. And I think in looking at David the man, what the author is calling us to is to face the reality of the story. Face the reality of what's going on and what will come. And also face a reality in our own lives as well. So seeing David the man helps us face reality. And, and how, how exactly will it do that? Well, I, I, don't, I like documentaries. I don't know about you. I, whenever I see a documentary on TV, I, I stop. And it doesn't matter what it's about. I usually listen until my wife makes me change it. Um, but I'm just, I'm fascinated with documentaries, whether it's a, a documentary exploring more in depth a historical event, or maybe it's behind the scenes footage of a movie. You know, those come on the, the DVD menu, the extras you can get to watch behind the scenes. I don't know what it is. I, I think, well, I think I know what it is. Why I love them so much is because I think we all have this feeling, no matter what we read about or what we see, whether it's a movie or historical event, we all have this feeling that there's a story behind the story, that there's, there's something more to it, right? All history is selective history, so we can't know everything. And so when you get a documentary, you get behind the scenes of a movie, you get, you're let in. You're let, the curtain's kind of pulled back and you're kind of let backstage. You get to see what was really going on and the whole thing kind of just makes it seem a little more real. Well, I think that's what happens when we take a second and pause and think David was a real man. It helps us understand the story a little bit better. He was a real person. He's just like you and me. And that's easy to forget with a lot of biblical characters, but especially with David. You think about it. He slayed giants. He led armies. He's a king. Uh, he's a skilled musician. He was a masterful poet. He was righteous in God's eyes. He was the man after God's own heart. And so if you want to be one too, dare then 
to be like David, right? Henry David Thoreau, in his, uh, his work, uh, Walden, I don't pretend to be a Thoreau expert or to have read all of Walden, but I came across this quote and I liked it. Um, and this is something that Thoreau says in Walden. He says this. He says, if you've built castles in the air, your work not need, need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now, put the foundations under them. Again, I don't pretend to know all of what Thoreau is intending there in that quote, but I think in essence what he's saying is don't let lofty aspirations in your life make you feel like they're unattainable, right? Put the foundations under them so that they can become uh, more concrete in your life. I think there's what we do with the Bible and especially biblical characters like David is that we build castles in the air, so to speak. We make them out to be these people that are unattainable. We make them out to be these people that we we would never know anyone like David. We could never come close to knowing anyone like David. We do the same thing with with theological truths as well. They kind of become these beautiful truths like that that looks really good on my refrigerator or just to put in a card or something, but it's not, maybe it's not, do I really know it in my life? I I love to use Romans 8.28, for example. One of the most beautiful, glorious truths in all of Scripture that for all those that love God, Uh, For all those that love God, all things work together for good. Beautiful and glorious truth. No denying that. But if you know real life, real life can sometimes make Romans 8.28 seem like a castle in the air, can it not? How is Romans 8.28 really true for me? There's different things that can happen to us that make us ask that. C.S. Lewis, in a grief observed as he's um, dealing and processing the loss of his wife who died of cancer, he says this. He says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. That's... That's us, right? That's faith, the glorious theological truths that we proclaim and cling to, the hope that we cling to. But we don't really know how much we really believe them until they become a matter of life and death to us. Where are the foundations? How do we get the foundations that make these truths um, real to us, make them concrete to us? Well, this is why I love the David story. This is why I love the, the Old Testament, because I think this is precisely why the Bible gives us stories. That's why we're given stories. David's story is selective history. We don't know all there is to know. All written history is selective history. But it's the story of a real man. (laughs) You can't make this up. This man that's going to be the greatest king in Israel's history, his father doesn't even think to bring him to the feast. That's the picture we get, right? It's the story of a real man called by God to be the king of God's people. And through the story of this man's life, not just this chapter, we see what it really means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Because do you know the story? You know what's in the story? Yeah, Goliath's in the story. Saul's in the story. There's those well-known parts of the story. But you know what else is in the story? There's betrayal. There's bloodlust. There's assassination, there's sex, there's envy, there's murder. And guess what? The main character isn't just the victim of those things. 
times he's the main villain. And so through the story, we see that David can't just be a model for us. He can't just be this castle in the air of the man after God's own heart and we just need to be like him. He is, in many instances, a very faithful example to us. But he can't be only that because through the story, what really stands out is his humanity. He's a son of Adam. He had flesh and blood and sin. He sings, he dances, he laughs, he cries, he makes friends, he's lonely, he's full of praise. He gets depressed. He fears for his life. He seems like all hope is gone. He feels like he is totally screwed it up at points. From the standpoint of his humanity, David wasn't much. <laughs> David, just the man, wasn't much. You know, I told you, it's the, single, uh, it's the longest single narrative we have of any one character in all of Scripture. There's not a single miracle in the David story. Not one. You find that interesting. Because it's precisely this man that God chooses to be one of the central figures of, uh, in, his people's, in his people's history. But you see, it's his humanity in the story as you read on that really makes us uncomfortable. That's, we, that's why we like the man after God's own heart, David. We don't like the Bathsheba, David, the Uriah, David. We don't really want to go too close to that, David, if we don't have to. But it's his humanness that shines through over and over again, and it makes us the most uncomfortable. Because for us, humanity is so frequently experienced as dishonorable, wicked, and flawed, and David is no exception. For many of us, we build our spiritual castles in the air because it's our humanity that we're the most uncomfortable with. It's the real us that we're the most uncomfortable with. In the beginning of this story, and this is why I love how this sets up the rest of the David story, because there's a theme here that runs throughout it. Don't be fooled by appearances. Don't just look at the external. And the beginning of the story reminds us not to be fooled there, not to focus on the external, but we cannot miss that one of the deadliest ways that we do this is by denying our humanity. Humanity strikes a nerve. That's why these videos the last few weeks have struck a nerve. There are people that have not thought, has second thought about the institution of abortion since 1973, but you better believe these videos have unearthed it. Strikes a nerve. We don't want to look at those. I don't want to look at those videos. I don't want to hear the quotes. It makes me sick. I want to get as far away from the fact that that is a reality in our culture. It's our humanity. It makes us uncomfortable. We cannot miss that one of the deadliest ways that we deny our humanity, uh, that, we are, that we are fooled by appearances, is by denying our own humanity. And what I mean is denying the real you. <laughs> denying the ordinary you. The you that you know and that you usually don't want anybody else to know. The you that your spouse knows all too well. And if you can just keep it there, you're good. The you, not the you that you put on, not the you that you want others to think of you as, not the you that you measure yourself against and beat yourself up for not being, the real you. We look at God making David a man after his own heart. We see it's precisely his manness that God uses, his ordinary, 
his humanity, his sin. You've got to ask yourself, do you really want to go there, right? At RUF staff training uh, annually, we have staff training in July in Atlanta. And uh, this last week was a special week because uh, they, they made a space of a day and a half apart from our regular training schedule that we usually go through. They, they put on a marriage conference for us. Uh, invited us all to bring our wives, as many of us as, as could. Uh, we had a great, it was really a, a sweet time for all of us uh, to be together. And during one of those times, a fellow campus minister and his wife stood up uh, to share about a really hard time that they had had in their marriage and uh, what it was like to go through it and to uncover it and, uh, to, and to deal with it and work through it. Um, and at one point, the, the, the one quote that really stuck with me was the campus minister's wife. And she was talking about dealing with uh, this, this, this brokenness in her marriage that she knew was there all the while trying to be a mother and wanting everybody to think she had it together as a mother. And dealing with her marriage and wanting everybody to think that she had it all together when it came to her marriage. And this is what she said. She said, I just longed to be weak and for that to be okay. I just longed to be weak and for that to be okay. Do we really want to go there? David's humanity takes us there. If we deal with David, we have to go there. Because he was a man, just like you and me. Let's see in David as the man and facing the reality of his humanity and facing the reality of our own humanity. The second thing I want to think about here is David the king. David the king. Because as you read through the story, you become very acquainted with all the ways that David is like us. But you also notice very quickly, David is not like us. He was a king. Not only was he a king, he was a king of God's people, God's nation, Israel. Uh, and so in a lot of ways throughout the story, he's larger than life. But this is also another way that the story speaks to us. Because as we look at David the king, we start to see that there's something that we need that we aren't. There's something that we need. So seeing David as the king helps us face our need. You look at verse 1 there, and you find that the prophet Samuel uh, is still grieving over the first king Saul. Saul is still king, but Samuel knows that the Lord has rejected him. And so he's grieving. And it's interesting, um, back in Deuteronomy 17, some, some 300 years before this, God had actually given provisions for his people for a king when they got to the promised land. This wasn't something out of the blue for God or for his people. He actually had laid out provisions for them to have a king uh, when they inherited the promised land. And it's interesting that God explicitly points out there in Deuteronomy 17 that this king was not supposed to be like other kings. Um, He wasn't supposed to hoard horses uh, or material possessions. He wasn't supposed to hoard women like other kings. And he was not supposed to exalt himself over his people, but rather to serve them. And so Samuel's grieving because Saul has been none of that. He's been just like all the other kings. And he's failed. Not only has he failed, but he rebelled against God and he's been rejected. The thing about Saul is out of all the people of Israel, Saul looked the part. We're told that he was a head taller than every other Israelite. Everybody looked at Saul and said, yeah, that's the king. That's the king. That's who we want, right? You remember the book of Judges? The book of Judges comes uh, before this one in Israel's history. And there's this constant refrain throughout the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
If you're familiar with the book of Judges at all, you know that that was a disaster. So Samuel grieves because he knows that their people, that his people, need a king. He knows that they need a king. And lo and behold, God comes to him and says, Samuel, I've provided for myself a king. Let's go. And so Samuel goes, as he's told, the elders meet him there. It's kind of a funny scene as the elders come out, you know, the prophets come in. They're kind of, they're kind of worried, like, what did we do? Um, but they meet him, and uh, he tells them what the deal is, and this great feast is thrown, and Samuel gets time with Jesse's sons. Jesse assembles his A-team, right? Jesse brings his A-team to the prophet. And here's where the awkward part starts, right? Samuel takes one look. One look. And he's relieved. Because he looks at Eliab and he says, Ah, here's our king. Sound familiar? It's kind of awkward, right? It's awkward for us because God has to say no to what Samuel and all these other people wanted. Again, Saul twice pointed out as a head head taller than everyone in Israel. So if Samuel had had his choice, we basically would have had Saul 2.0, right? The thrust of this passage, this is what I love, the thrust of this passage is not just don't be fooled by appearances. No, the thrust of the passage is that we, to our peril, are enslaved to appearances. We are enslaved to the external. We are enslaved to the surface level problems and solutions. And God has to say no to that. And what we're shown here is that these people, they just assume that what impresses them must be what impresses God. Right? And in verse 7, God corrects them. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So to see as God sees, then, is to see His heart, to see His will, and to look to that and not to what just my eyes can see. And when Samuel looks and says, this is the one, God says, no, I've rejected that one. Right? And this is what this tells us. This tells us that to find the true king, we have to realize that God rejects all the stuff that we cling to as our king. To find the true king, we have to realize that God rejects all the stuff that we cling to as our king. I stole this illustration, but I love it. I think it hits close to home, maybe. Do you know those giant souvenir shops at the beach, right? You go to the beach. You've worked really hard for this vacation, right? Um, you've got your family, this beautiful oceanfront view out of your condo. The beach is like 30 seconds away. Your kids can go there all day for all you care, right? But where do your kids want to be? They want to be on Front Beach Road in the traffic at the souvenir shop, right? And, you know, there's something about being a kid. You think about the souvenir shop and all the stuff that's there, all the stuff that your mother would never let you have in your room, right? And that's all you want. There's something that happens when you get older, right? you realize that no matter what the price tag says about all that stuff in the souvenir shops, it's all garbage, right? It's all garbage that you'd throw away within 30 seconds of having it. 
The story of the Bible, the story of life, right, is that we are prone, we are inclined to cling to and exalt garbage. Garbage. Because we are ruled by the external. We are ruled by appearances. We are ruled by the surface. It's what we look to. It's what we want. It's what we strive after. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, it's worth asking ourselves every day, where is my heart in relation to God's heart? Where is my heart in relation to God's heart? And there's a few things. I mean, there's many things you could look at. But for starters, think about this. What is it about people that fascinates me? What is it? The people I come in contact with, the people I want to know, the people I want to meet. What is it about people that fascinates me? Turn it around a little bit. What is it about me that I want people to be fascinated with? That's a good one. What is it about me that I want people to be fascinated with? Is it charm? Is it beauty? Is it charisma? What is it? Your calling in life, your career, whatever it is that you do, whatever God has called you to at this station in your life, why do you do it? What are you looking for? What are you using it to attain? Are you looking for the money? Are you looking for the prestige? Are you looking for the social standing? We all know you will never have enough money And there will always be someone better than you, right? Your family. What is it that I want people to see in my family? Better question. What do I not want them to see? And what do I go to great lengths to make sure no one ever sees it? All questions worth asking. None of these things, bad in and of themselves, prestige, wealth, attractive looks, personality, all these things, none of them inherently bad in and of themselves, but they are garbage when we exalt them and put them on a throne they were never meant to sit upon. Because none of those things, none of the things that we exalt and cling to, none of them can be the righteous king that saves us. None of them. There's a phenomenon that people have been noting more and more recently uh, called perpetual outrage. Um, Basically, the Internet has given us this glorious thing called mob hysteria, mass hysteria. Not a new thing, actually. But it's made it come back in vogue. Whenever anything happens, we have to go onto our computers in all caps and scream about it, right? And it's called perpetual outrage because it's something new every single week. Now, there are things worth being outraged over, Recent weeks are a prime example. But what happens is when there actually is something worth getting outraged over, it's drowned out by all the other outrage that we keep throwing about everything. Right? Why is perpetual outrage a thing? Why is it that we cannot stop screaming about everything that offends us or outrages us? And we are not immune to this. This is not a them out there thing. This is all of us. Why is it? Why is the world like this? Why is there perpetual outrage? Because... We all have this deep longing for perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And in the words of you too, we still haven't found what we're looking for. And so we just hope the next thing that we're outraged about will feed it for us. Don't be surprised 
when God continually has to say no to the things that you think will save you. Don't be surprised when God rejects the saviors that you've exalted in your life. He's always been about the business of upsetting our expectations because he wants us to be ruled by his heart and not ours. David the king shows us and helps us face our need. We need a king. We need a king of righteousness. We need a king of justice. The final thing I want to look here is David the anointed. David the anointed. And what looking at David as the anointed one shows us is that at at some point, all of us, every one of us, will have to face God. Looking at David as the anointed shows us that we must face God. Because as you read the story, it's obvious how David is brought onto the scene of history. God's anointing. The only reason David is brought into the story is because of God's anointing. Samuel grieved for God's people because the king had failed. But in 1 Samuel 16, what we see is that God, Yahweh, as he's called in the Old Testament, the true king, he never lost control. Not once. How many times do we need to hear this? You read the old, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, the history of God's people in the Old Testament, you read that as many times as you can. You will see something that comes up over and over and over again, and it's the people of Israel freaking out because they don't know who's in control, and it's God coming over and over and over again and saying, I am in control, and I never lost it. And I never will. We need to hear that. We need to hear that because there's no Supreme Court in any nation ever in the history of the world that will ever make God not in control. There's no presidential candidate. There's no political party. There's nothing that will ever make God not be in control. That's what this story is screaming at us from the outset. And you see how deliberate God is in this passage. He never panics, He's in no hurry. He's not worried because God doesn't get worried. The thrust of this passage is that this is God's anointing. This is God's intervention into the story. It's God's provision. He provided for himself a king. And it's accompanied by God's spirit in the life of David. This was God's man, God's king, God's anointed for God's people. That's the beauty of the story. He would be God's anointed. And Samuel, the prophet Samuel, as we see here, he knew exactly what that meant. Though he initially screws it up, you look at verse 6. He says, surely this is God's anointed. And he gets it wrong who it is, but he knows what he's looking for. Is the word anointed there in Hebrew is the word Messiah, from which we get the word Messiah. Samuel knew what he was looking for. He was looking for a Savior. Because he knew God's people needed someone to save them. Yeah, again, think about this. You have to imagine how ridiculous the scene is with David in the midst of his brothers. David's forgotten. They finally go and send for him. They finally bring him in. Here's David in the middle of all his brothers, all his brothers who look the part. And then run David in the middle. And God says, you know what? 
That's the one. That's the one. (coughs) And it's clearly pointing to what God was doing here. Preparing his people for the only kind of king that could ultimately save them. It wouldn't be David. It wouldn't be David because it couldn't be David. If you read through the story, that becomes obvious, right? Over a thousand years later, it would be the one as the king is born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. And the whole Old Testament tells us of people that were looking for him, right? Do You get the weight of the Christmas story. The whole world is waiting for this king and not one person notices it. Everybody missed it. They missed him. The one by whom, for whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. He missed him. No one thought, as Jesus comes onto the scene in his public ministry, no one said, oh, yeah, 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 this is the Messiah. This is it. Let's go. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown. They say, "Uh uh-uh. Mark chapter 6, we see people saying, he's just one of us. Matthew chapter 11, we see people saying, no, he's too wild. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. John chapter 7, we, say, we have people saying, what good can come out of Nazareth? And the clincher for even his own disciples. Wait a minute. Messiahs don't suffer. The king that God provided. But everybody misses him. Everybody misses him. And let's be honest. Let's be honest. It's all kind of silly. It is all kind of silly that the Bible is going to tell me that the king that I need is a naked, beaten, bloody man hanging on a cross. That's the king I need? That's what we're proclaiming to the world, by the way, when we proclaim the gospel. That's why Paul says it's foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jew. It's foolishness that that would be my king. That's the one I need. And the story of the Bible says that's exactly what you need. Because that's the only king that can save you. As church father Irenaeus said, in Jesus we see that the glory of God is a fully alive human. It makes no sense to us. But if we're so brave to do what this chapter and what the rest of the David story urges us to do, to look below the surface. What we begin to see, we start to see that what, a lot of what's ugly in David's story, a lot, of, a lot of what's ugly in the Bible, a lot of what's ugly in life, the reason it makes us uncomfortable, because we see the same stuff in our own hearts. That's why it makes us uncomfortable. That's why we don't want to go there. That's why we build castles in the air of what a perfect marriage should look like, of what a perfect family should look like, of what a perfect church should look like. Because we don't want to deal with what it really is. Yet, (laughs) again, the beauty of the story, it's precisely what God uses to lead us to the only king who can truly save us. Because that king, that king who can truly save us, he works in people. Real, live, broken, messed up, tired, anxious, depressed people. 
Again, let's ask, why David? Why David? Eugene Peterson puts it like this. Conditioned by the morals and assumptions of a brutal Iron Age culture, David with his eight wives, David angry, David devious, David generous, David dancing, David weeping. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that God can't and doesn't use to work his salvation and holiness into our lives. Did you hear that? (laughs) There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that God can't and will not use to work his salvation and holiness, not onto our lives, into our lives. You know when you found the true king, the true king that can save? It's when you can honestly look at yourself and say, you know, I might have it together on the outside, but on the inside, I am a wreck. When you can truly say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I'm exhausted, I'm angry, I'm confused, I'm self-absorbed. I need something. I need someone who will save me, who will heal me from the inside out. And you see, that's the beautiful moment when the foolish cross becomes the most beautiful thing because what you begin to see is that it is an everlasting symbol of a king's love for you. That he doesn't just swoop in and fix things here and there, but he actually renews my whole person. And if I am his, I'm called a Christian. You know what that literally means? Anointed one. It's why we can look at a guy like David, just a guy, and we can see the heart of King Jesus. Be encouraged by that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this story. We thank you for this boy, this man this king. But above all, we thank you for the king that he points us to. The king that we need. The king who has loved us with an everlasting love. Would we see him today? We pray these things in his name. Amen. If you take your bulletin with me, let us stand and sing, All I Have is Christ.